there's not that many serial tech entrepreneurs in the legal space, but Gary Sanga is one of them, if not maybe the only that I've ever heard of. Uh, Gary runs Lit IQ. He was an attorney 10 years ago, has now been in the, the tech and software world. Lit IQ applies machine learning to legal documents to help lawyers stop making mistakes. Gary speaks with us this week in the Tech Emergence podcast about where artificial intelligence plays a role in the legal world today and what the future of the legal space may look like in the coming 10 or 15 years ahead. In addition to where the technologies that he uses at LitIQ apply in the legal world, where those same technologies might apply in the world of academia or other spaces where text can be analyzed with great scrutiny. So an interesting interview here with Gary. Hopefully you guys enjoy this one. So Gary, the, the first question I wanted to run off of with you here is I'm, I'm on the LitIQ website. I have a, a notion of, of what you folks do based on hearing a presentation here in San Francisco recently. It seems to me that applying machine learning and AI to detecting issues in kind of legal paperwork is awful challenging from just sort of a, a general NLP uh, standpoint, even grammatical standpoint. Give us a brief rundown of, of what LitIQ's main sort of value prop is. What are these functionalities you guys are, are using now uh, within your software? Sure. So basically what we're helping to do is we're helping lawyers catch mistakes. It may sound shocking to some of your listeners, but yet lawyers are human too. Oh, totally, and, yeah. And they're prone to, you know, not batting a thousand. I mean, just give you a sense of the problem. Modern law is changing from when I practiced 10 years ago. So the average merger agreement, for example, has doubled in size in the last 15 years. Hmm. And folks still only have 24 hours in a day. You know, after the financial crisis, the business all got really shaken up where they can't hire as many associates. So basically, in a nutshell, it's just a whole different ballgame now for the modern lawyer. And because of just the complexity of these documents, people need help because obviously the chances of errors increase significantly. Um, so that's the problem that we're trying to tackle. And what's unique is, so I'm affiliated with Stanford and the University of Pennsylvania and most of my team on the development side come from these two schools. And what my computational linguistics colleagues tell me is that, look, linguistics and the law are natural bedfellows, yet they very rarely interact if, from a commercial standpoint, right? Like how many, hmm. I mean, frankly, you would think that NLP machine learning should have been applied to a lot of weeks ago, right? But no one has, right? Odd. Very. So it's just interesting that this problem hasn't been tackled sooner. And I think that's just a function of not having somebody just point out you need to basically be a lawyer to understand the nature of the problem. Yep, yep, yep. And anybody else, you see the document, you don't know, right? Nope. Yeah, so that's kind of the background of it. And the team, again, every one of my team is either has advanced degrees or a PhD in computational linguistics. And we use a variety of strategies to find these issues. You know, obviously there's some of the sexier stuff, uh, you know, part of speech tagging, whatnot, but even simple regular expressions actually can really take you very far, you know, Boolean connectors and whatnot, in terms of helping you catch issues. And this is just nuts and bolts stuff, right? Huh. Well, I mean, I'll be frank, and I, I don't uh, pompously uh, kind of 
tout my own domain expertise where I don't have it. Bool, you know, Boolean expression fundamentals, you know, if you gave me a chalkboard, I'd, I'd draw some pretty dumb stuff because I, I, uh, my, my knowledge there is actually not, not tremendous. But it sounds as though, again, you're, you're leveraging a number of strategies in order to coax out these, these errors um, using computational linguistics. That that's, sounds like kind of a layman's-ish way of putting it. When we're talking about errors, Gary, are we referring here to let's say like, like what kinds of errors are detectable? I imagine today, and, and I'd be very surprised to hear otherwise, today there is probably still a lot that is very hard to detect with machines. In other words, there's all this contextual real world stuff around what company X is and what it does that no matter how many times you comb that piece of paper with a machine, I mean, it's just not going to know those details. However, there are some things that I could see as possible to pick up. Let's say, you know, referring to a company in two different ways and two different sections of a legal document where it's it's sort of framing them in a different way where the legal considerations are different and it should be uniform. Okay, so we're we're kind of flagging some contextual, you know, adjectives or a description of what a company is that 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 might otherwise sort of cause for some legal dispute down the line. I imagine there's a lot of grammatic stuff. I imagine there's a lot of particular legal language that is often maybe misspelled or terms often used in place of other terms that could be wrong. What what is what is sort of detectable now, Gary, with the strategies you articulated? Sure. And you're spot on, by the way. So in terms of challenges and issues that we tackle, obviously contextual ambiguity is a big one, right? Really tough. Finding conflicting language, right? Yep. That's an obvious error, right? What are other issues? Well, basically stuff, we look for stuff that could potentially either cause lawsuits or facilitate a lawsuit, right? And those are ambiguities of various types, right? So things like syntactic and semantic ambiguity. So for example, you can do X or Y unless Z. So does Z apply to X? Does it apply to Y? Or both, right? Yeah. You, can, you can only donate to an educational and charitable institute. Must it be both educational and charitable or one or the other? Ah. Uh. Look, I mean, why do people sue each other? People sue each other because it's their interest to do so, right? Yep. But there's a big difference between litigating over a document that's airtight and one that's full of inconsistencies and loopholes, as you can imagine, right? Yeah. And look, the problem is, and you know, I was talking to this one professor at Harvard about this, the English language has a ton of ambiguities, and it's, it's a feature, not a bug, of the English language, right? I mean, the classic example is, I saw her duck. So you see with a burner, you see her dodge, right? Yeah. And look, and the point is, it's a feature, not a bug, because otherwise, can you imagine how big our vocabulary would have to be, right? Oh, it'd be absurd, yeah. Right? So the issue is that, look, when you and I talk or when you're writing an email, human beings, we, we try to understand your intention, right? So it, communication flows nicely. The problem with legal drafting, though, is you have to assume an adversarial interpretation. Yeah. Right? Because the people are only going to sue what's their interest to, at which point they don't care what your intention is. They're going to try to construe it in their way. And it's just not easy for people to do that. It's just not normal, right? Yeah, interesting. Well, I guess for you folks, it's it's a little bit of a more normal way of thinking just because it's it's how you have to train your brain. But like you said, day to day... I'm kind of talking to you right now, knowing that you're you're relatively aware of the purpose of this interview. We're trying to have a fun time and you know teach teach some uh, some interesting lessons and shine light on some trends. But when you're again when you're writing a legal document, having adversarial interpretation in mind, yeah, that's that's a mind shift for most folks, without a doubt. Absolutely, 
and it's just something that people aren't good at. And look, it doesn't mean that just because you introduce an ambiguity, it's going to cause a lawsuit, right? Well, nine times out of ten, it's not going to be an issue. But again, it's the job of the lawyer to get the details right. That's why yep. you're paying that. That's yep. why you're paying her 500 bucks an hour. Right? Exactly. Yeah. So, okay. So finding those contextual ambiguities, finding, you know, ands or ifs that, that might open up again, like you had mentioned, might open up ambiguity. And I imagine, you know, it might be possible to train a machine and, and, you know, in my imagination, this might be what you do to coax out what those common ambiguities are given the English language, given uh, what has caused legal troubles in the past? You can maybe analyze those situations that have brought up other lawsuits and train a machine to pick up on what are these vague circumstances and do any of these exist in this document? Um, are you guys able to use previous legal cases to train these models, train these machines, uh, develop your approach? Absolutely. And that's, again, the most straightforward way. What actually does cause trouble, right? There could be low-risk ambiguities. There could be high-risk ambiguities, right? Everyone's heard of that proverbial case with a comma, you know, caused something bad to happen, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But how often does that really happen, right? So the the lawsuits can guide you in terms of what are the issues to to look for. But again, uh, you know, as your listeners know, any in the space knows, you know, the problem isn't just you know catching the stuff. The problem is how do you improve the precision, right? Because again, these are engineers, these are people have to use a product. So yep. if your precision isn't very good, you're just not going to get adoption. And then what's the point, right? Huh, curious. So, and, and it seems to me, Gary, I mean, obviously your own background is in the legal domain. The people who are working with you, uh, it sounds as though some of them, in addition to the linguistic side of things, have, you know, a decent knowledge in that, in that space. It, it seems as though that, that the same kind of technology, and we will talk about the future in a second, but I'm just speaking with you offhand, it seems as though this kind of technology may be suitable for all kinds of other industries as well. I mean, I'm thinking, you know, again, off the top of my head in, in sort of maybe the, the academic literature, whether it be medical or otherwise, there might be ways of, you know, stating your abstract or stating your findings that, you know, are, are more sort of up to snuff in terms of the standards of you know accuracy in terms of of conveying the degree of accuracy uh, in in a way that's legitimate and honorable and, and straightforward and other ways that maybe can make those things more vague or make them sound better or worse than they are there's probably ways of coaxing that out of academic work and and there's got to be other places where kind of the nitty gritty of language can make a big difference legal obviously being one of them have you also thought about sort of where else in the world this kind of deeper analysis might eventually wiggle its way? Absolutely. Look, what we tell people is we can apply our technology, frankly, to any document that you could get in trouble with if you mess it up, right? <laughs> nice. So think about reports, memos, uh, any serious document. Um, what's interesting with just the written form, and this is probably you know a bit too intellectual, so I apologize. Go for it, go for it. But... What, what you've seen is kind of a divide in writing where through text messages, WhatsApp, things like that, if you notice, day-to-day -day writing has actually gotten a lot, simple, uh, a lot more simpler and just, you know, it's not expressive as much, right? You can have emojis now that can, that can convey yeah, 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 yeah. it, right? Yep. So um, sometimes people say you want to develop a grammar tech. Well, actually, I think the future for grammar techers probably is that great just because, yeah, day-to-day writing has gotten very, very casual. 
But as a byproduct of that, people, frankly, their formal writing is lacking. I think. Yep. Uh, and there's studies that bear that out. You know, companies have to spend a lot of money training their workforce to write better, right? Because they didn't. Because, yeah, they didn't learn it in school because they were texting the whole time. Exactly. They're, you know, people just don't write day to day anymore. We you know, <laughs> send emojis now. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, in that sense, um, in terms of the world of formal writing. There is definitely, you know, a need for tech to help people. Curious. Well, that that's that's interesting as a, as a meta trend, just to to sort of think about long ball. That you know, as we begin to communicate with our voice or with just you know images and gifs and all these other ways of essentially conveying a point, which sure they might be convenient, they might even be fun, they might even be easy to do, but they might also have a bit of a detrimental effect on the real super clean you know, coherent, concise language that is needed for high stakes, um, you know, situations like contracts, uh, legal agreements, and, and things along those lines. And maybe that's all the more reason why we might as well have machines to correct this stuff. So I can see the, the valid case there. In terms of legal at large, Gary, you know, you've been in tech now for quite some time. You, you've, you've done your own sort of attorney work and been educated in that space. When you look out into the next five or 10 years of the legal landscape, what, what do you see sort of, I mean, of course, you know, there's things directly related to your company. I, I'm open to talking about things, you know, you know, meta trends or micro trends that, that maybe, you know, do or don't necessarily overlap with what you guys are up to. But wh- what do you see going away in the legal world? What do you see coming in and force in the legal world? How do you see the landscape change in the next five to 10 years, given the developments in technology, machine learning, etc.? Sure. You know, as you might know, I've been told I'm the first serial legal tech entrepreneur. Not many of you guys. Yeah, not many yeah, of you guys. Many of us, right? nope. um, so I think I'm somewhat qualified to answer this question. I'll tell you one thing that's not going to happen. You're not going to have robot lawyers. You're not going to have someone replace an attorney because so much of what an attorney does is actually non-technical. It's having that counselor, having that advocate, you know, having someone you can talk to. Yep, and that's yep, never yep. going away, right? The papers have come out where they say that probably only about 10% of what a modern lawyer does can actually be automated, that the flow stuff, right? So the higher level advice and whatnot, that's never going away. Huh. I think what is going to happen, in my opinion, is I think the future of research, legal research, is non-research in the sense that you, you know, right now, if I'm looking for a precedent case or a contract, I have to go to a database, I have to enter some queries, I have to review the information. Why should I? I think the future is the system systems and software analyzes your documents and gives you the information for you. I yeah. think software can definitely do a better job of research than any person can, and a more comprehensive job, right? So I think that's where you're going to see a lot of advancements and just, you know, it's frankly lovely of a playing field with these great new research systems that can do stuff for you. They're already coming out to market. Yeah, so maybe even if you don't have a, a big fancy-dancy firm in you know, Philadelphia or, you know, New York City or something like that. And, and you don't have, you know, 30, you know, legal, you know, library runners that can go, go do the gig for you. You can still get a fantastic lay of the land of your legal situation um, with technology. That's that leveling effect you are potentially talking about. It, it sounds as though also, I mean, I, I'm thinking out loud with you, Gary, just because I'm, I'm curious as the applications just across the board, you know, it seems as though 
you might be able to in a more distant future. Lawyers today, and, and again, tell me if I'm wrong, they have some degree of, not entirely, definitely not entirely, but some degree of templatable stuff when it comes to maybe simpler documents like I'm not sure that the sale of a particular kind of business or, you know, a partnership agreement when funding a company or founding a company or, or whatever, raising money, maybe they at least have something to start with. They literally don't start with a blank word document. They have something. And, and I, I, I think I'm right on that. Okay. Otherwise it'd be a, a, a rather difficult uh, gig. Um, and of course, rocket lawyer is not going to cut. It is not going to cut it for everything. You know, these websites with free documents, but every, every legal firm that's experience has some backlog of that in the the future, might it be possible to say, you know, well, say in words or, or type into a software program, here's the size of the company, the parties involved, the this, the that, the this, the that, the this, the that, the this, the that, and, and they're going to start off, this guy's going to own 60%, this guy's going to own 40%. Under these circumstances, this is going to happen. Under these circumstances, this is going to happen. Enter. And then when they click enter, you know, template B45, which is like a founding, you know, a company, whatever it is, a financial services firm or whatever, whatever the company is, just gets modified with those criteria where it's not as simple as just fill in the name Bill Smith, whatever it says name, it actually sort of molds a doc and then you'd get a live human to sort of tweak that from there. Is that sort of thing viable in the more distant future where, where maybe even some of that drafting and writing work, uh, not just correcting, but actual creation might be kind of machine doable, at least as a first draft. Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, these form builders are getting more and more advanced. You can add more custom features. So that's definitely on its way. But one thing I would caution, you know, all of your listeners is, and I, and I tell my students this, um, like the modern contract, it's not just to there just to basically memorialize what you're going to do and what I'm going to pay you. I mean, if you ever look at a contract, that's like one or two sentences. Most of the modern contract is a risk mitigation or risk allocation vehicle, yeah. right? And, okay, well, how do you allocate risk to the other party? Well, you do it based off two things. A, your leverage, and B, your know-how. Can you sneak stuff in, right? If the other party doesn't know, right? Oh, man. So, so there's always going to be a need where somebody's parties going to have more know-how and more leverage. And they're going to always want to want basically be able to negotiate and create custom documents, right? Yep, of course. And yeah, so it, there's certainly no no way that you would have you know things that would be so simple as a machine adjustable template in any way that there there would have to obviously be a ton of that contextual stuff. And and there's going to be people. You know, everyone's going to want to pass it back and forth between their lawyers and, and adjust it, like you said, pass the risk along somewhere else. As a little bit of kind of background knowledge to speak to these trends as we close up here, uh, Gary, you had mentioned something at the beginning of this interview that I, I think maybe will feed into the thought process of the audience as they kind of consider the legal landscape combined with the technical landscape. You had mentioned that, you know, let's say a mergers and acquisition agreement, you know, twice as long as they were. Uh, 10, 15 years ago, whatever it was. Let me ask you this. Why Why is that? Because that if that is a meta trend, that's something worth considering as, as the legal field rolls forward. What has made it that much more robust and complex? Sure. Um, well, again, the modern lawyer, if they write a good document, you're not going to give them a high five, right? It's it's all negative reinforcement, right? They're only going to get yelled at if, you go to law, if something causes litigation, right? Yep, yep, yep. So, it's because it's all negative reinforcement, you have the kitchen sink problem where basically 
they want to put in new stuff to help mitigate risk. And, you know, we're talking about these research databases. They've gotten so robust now that you can find more things that people put in the document. Oh, man. Right? Yeah. So, I mean, no one got in trouble for making the document longer. They may get in trouble to just take something away, right? It's all negative reinforcement. So, yeah. It's not getting any shorter. The documents are not going to get shorter. Oh, man. Well, you know, that's troubling because, you know, it's like McDonald's, right? They they have some woman buy a hot cup of coffee, spill it on herself, and then sue them successfully because it was hot. And then they have to put caution hot on the hot coffee cup um, just in case you can't feel it that it's hot. Now, and now, now they have to print that on all the bleeping cups, which from the outside feels like, just the most ridiculous thing in the world. But it sounds like in the legal world, you find some new precedent where some old clause makes a difference and you just add another paragraph. You find another precedent that could happen if you move to another state and you put that in. And it sounds like, like wow, it sounds like that could go on forever uh, in, in a pretty rough way. Hopefully the machines will help, Gary. I guess that's all I can say. Well, again, I mean, I think there's a lot of space there for machines to help people make better decision making, reduce risk of the transaction. I mean, that's fundamentally what, you know, lawyers are designed to do. And there's ways the machines can definitely help just improve commerce in general. <laughs> Man, you know, in, in, to, to close, the nightmare situation of Elon Musk is, is the, you know, artificial intelligence, you know, gaining access to humans' resources and maybe at some point, you know, destroying us. The nightmare in the legal world is super powerful artificial intelligence is that create almost infinitely long documents factoring for all yeah, factors yeah. to the point where humans can't even deal with it anymore. Gary, I'm going to hope you'll keep that 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 uh, dystopia from happening to us. And I'm, I'm rooting for you at your current endeavor in a big way. Thank you for joining us here on the Tech Emerges podcast. My pleasure. Thank you so much. That wraps up today's episode here on the Tech Emerges podcast. And thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to stay in touch with our latest interviews with C-level executives and top researchers and thinkers in the domains of AI and the intersection of technology and intelligence, then make sure to subscribe here on iTunes or visit us on our main website at techemergence.com where you can see all of our interviews broken down by category as well as articles, news, market research, and trends in artificial intelligence. If you found this episode particularly thought-provoking, feel free to leave your thoughts in a review here on iTunes or you can feel free to reach out to us at our main website. Thanks as always for tuning in and I'll catch you next week.